Let's remain standing for the reading of God's word, please. And let's take our Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 3. We will read verses 3 through 8. Now hear God's word. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word stands forever. And let's pray together as we come to God's holy word. Our Father, how grateful we are for the privilege to come and to hear from your word. Again, Father, as always, we acknowledge, we recognize, we confess, we rejoice in the fact that these are not just human words, that these are not just speculations or interpretations that were written by mortal men, but that through these mortal men that penned these words, the very words of God have been penned, have been spoken. These men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, and through them you breathed out your word, which is profitable, all of it, for all of us, as you equip us and continue to strengthen us and transform us by the renewing of our minds. Father, how we depend upon your word to understand and to become the holy people that you would have us to become. And so as we encounter it and as it encounters us with all of its living and active power this morning, God, we do pray that you would continue to conform us into the very image of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth this morning and may the meditations of all of our hearts this day be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from time to time in God's providence, we face circumstances in our lives where things in this world, sometimes and oftentimes painful things in this world, cause us to focus on eternity and on the glory of God, and this past week was one of those times as we, as we lost a beloved sister in the Lord to physical death, but then rejoiced in the reality that she is with the Lord in eternity and for all of eternity. And when we go through these times, even though it's painful, when we, when we cope with death, or when we see and hear about tragedy in our world. It's kind, isn't it, of our Heavenly Father to work in those circumstances, to work through those 
providentially orchestrated circumstances to help us anchor our hope, not to the things of this world, but to the unseen realities that are eternal and that are to come. God is so kind and so good to do that. To help us recognize that ultimately eternity and the glory of God are the only things that matter. Because everything else in this world will pass away. No one, think about this, not a single person who refuses to repent and believe on Jesus Christ and obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one who ends up in eternity under the everlasting torment of the wrath of God. Not a single person who enters into the eternity of God's judgment will ever say, for a single second of that eternity, they will never say, well, you know what? It was worth it. If I could go back and do it all again, I wouldn't change a single thing about my life. No one will ever say that in the eternity of God's judgment. No one will ever say, the pursuit of my own pleasure, the pursuit of my own earthly desires, made this eternity of suffering worth it. Not a single lost soul will say that for a single instant of their eternity, apart from the glory of God in heaven as they languish under the everlasting punishment that their sin has earned. And, flip the coin over, not a single believer, not a single truly born-again Christian who by the grace and the power of God has been redeemed and reborn and by the same power of that same divine grace has, has remained, has endured, has persevered and thrived in holiness until the very end. Not one single faithful follower of Jesus who has been gathered by Him into the eternal rest of the kingdom of heaven, will ever say for a single second of that eternity in glory with the Lord, well, you know what? This is all well and good. But if I could just go back for one more day, one more hour, one more second, to enjoy the passing pleasures of life in that former world, then I would love to do that. No one will ever say that in heaven. Not one single saint in the everlasting glories of God's presence will ever for a single instant wish that they could go back because the world here has something to offer that eternal glory does not have. The only thing that matters is eternity. And the only thing that matters as we keep our eyes and our souls fixed on eternity as we sojourn through our lives in this world, the only thing that matters as we live in this world is the glory of God and not our own pleasures or desires or ambitions or dreams. To live for His glory now is to enjoy His glory forever. But to turn away from His glory now and pursue the things of this world instead or or to give His glory to ourselves and to our own desires, to worldly passions and ambitions, that is to ensure an eternal future apart from the glory of His presence in heaven, which means the only other option, according to His word, 
which is an eternity of experiencing consciously the eternal destruction of his wrath. And nothing in this world is worth it. Eternity is all that matters. God's glory is all that matters in our lives right now. Because if it's not all that matters, then God will glorify Himself by way of everlasting judgment to the praise of His glory. And those realities make death in this world at the end of our physical human lives in this world If we don't know the glory of God, it makes death a dreadfully fearful and terrible and inevitable reality to have to face. But if we do know and do pursue and are consumed with the glory of God, if by God's grace, if by God's power, we have been made to repent of our sins and cry out to Jesus Christ for salvation, if we are saved as all people who truly call on the name of Jesus Christ are saved then the Holy Spirit gives us new life. And He gives us that new life, He says, in abundance. And He gives it to us for eternity. And He begins, even now, to sustain that life. And to grow it and strengthen it. And He, and he completes this sanctifying work in us that makes us worthy of His calling and worthy of His eternal kingdom one day in glory. And when the everlasting glory of His kingdom is what lies in front of us on the other side of death, then death is not fearful. Death is not terrifying. Death completely loses its sting and its power when it is the passageway unto an eternity of heavenly glory in the presence of our Lord. And so... For the Christian who is continually growing in grace, in the words of one great hymn, it is not death to die. Here's how that hymn explains it and says it and expresses it. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, and midst the brotherhood on high to be at home with God. It is not death to fling aside this sinful dust and rise on strong, exulting wing to live among the just. For everyone who is in Christ Jesus, death is swallowed up by life. Death is swallowed up in victory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Because Jesus Christ was and is victorious over death, right? He rose from the grave on the third day. And in Him, all who have been given faith in Him have been raised to newness of life. This is what God's Word teaches. And that's what we're here to understand today from the words of Titus chapter 3. And in order to really understand that, here's what we need to understand about death. Death is not just some horrible natural phenomenon that just happens according to the course of nature in this world. The only way to understand death is through the lens of what God proclaims in His Word. 
And what he proclaims is that death is the penalty that God has imposed on sin. Death is God's righteous, just judgment over sin. Death, death isn't, see, death isn't God's competition. Death isn't something that has just risen up naturally in defiance against God. Some enemy that God must figure some way to defeat. Death is God's judgment. And that's really important to understand because that's how we have to understand the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And our resurrection in Jesus, in Him, to newness of life as the Bible describes it, which is what we're talking about today. And, and also the resurrection of our bodies, which God's word promises will happen on the last day. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 13 about why the death of Jesus happened. Jesus who was sinless. Jesus in whom there was no imperfection or spot or stain to be found. Why did he die physically? Not just because death is a natural, inevitable reality in this world. Paul explains it. Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Jesus became sin for us. God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The innocent man, the perfectly righteous, all-holy, spotless Lamb of God who is the Son of God, took our sins upon Himself on the cross and endured the full measure of the infinite intensity of God's wrath, of God's judgment for our sin. He became a curse for us in our place. And for that reason, He died. Not just because the Jews conspired to kill Him and demanded that He be executed. Not just because the Romans capitulated to the Jews and carried out and performed an execution. Not just for political reasons, but because the justice of God on high fell full force on Jesus. That's why He died. Isaiah 53 says, It pleased God the Father that the eternal wrath of the Almighty God should crush God the Son. Because He loved us so much, even as sinners, that that was the only way to save us and give us life. And that's what happened when Jesus died. And then see, the resurrection of Jesus on the third day was the almighty, holy, righteous God's statement that the death of Jesus was, was worthy, was sufficient, was good enough, and was enough to pay for all of the sins of all of the people who would believe upon Him. So the resurrection of Jesus, see, proves that His sacrifice on the cross was an all-sufficient sacrifice, that nothing else needed to happen in order to pay for our sin. It was abundantly adequate. 
to satisfy all of God's justice, to measure up to God's infinite holiness, to turn away God's eternal wrath against our sin, and to fully remove the curse of God against all sin from us who believe in Jesus. All of that is what the resurrection of Jesus means. Death has no victory in Jesus Christ. Death has no sting in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, the curse of death is swallowed up in victory and by life. So this is what we confess as Christians. This is what we believe. This is what we are. This is what we rejoice in every single Lord's Day with with living faith. This is the great truth that our hope is based on. By the power of God, Jesus Christ conquered death itself and raised us up who were dead in our sins and trespasses. He raised us up to newness of life and guaranteed us eternal life in the presence of God in His glory. And today, in a very special way, we get to confess and we get to celebrate all of this great glorious gospel truth about death and resurrection by celebrating baptism. The baptism of a sister of ours in Christ who is right now living this eternal life along with us. So this morning our focus in God's words is on these awesome words of Paul in the book of Titus which Stan just read a minute ago. And I want to focus especially on verses 4 through 7 here of Titus chapter 3, where in the mind of Paul, he's uttering a single sentence. Recognize that. Verses 4 through 7, whatever punctuation there is in your English Bible, didn't exist in the original Greek that Paul wrote. And in his mind, all of this, verses 4 through 7, is a single sentence, a fully formed thought in the mind and the heart of Paul. And at the very heart of this statement that he makes is this massively important truth that we are not saved from our sins by our own works of righteousness, but by what Paul calls the merciful washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And those words the washing of regeneration, they mean nothing short of, and they mean nothing less than, the full measure of the same sovereign, omnipotent, divine power by which God raised Jesus up from the dead. And the full impact of His resurrection, the full victory that He achieved over death, His sovereign conquest of the curse come to bear in our lives. That's what Paul means by the washing of regeneration. As we, through faith in Christ, are raised to newness of life in Him. As we are made by the almighty power of the great I Am to become new creations in Christ Jesus. So here's the deal. This is what God's Word reveals to us. What Jesus calls... New birth in John chapter 3, right? Where he said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again of water and of spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's the same thing 
The, the, the new birth that Jesus talks about there is the same thing that Paul calls being raised with Christ to newness of life in Romans chapter 6 and becoming new creations in Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All of that, see, is what Paul calls the washing of regeneration here in Titus chapter 3. And those are two important words in that phrase, washing of regeneration. And together the words washing and regeneration encapsulate all that it means to be a Christian. The word regeneration is a powerful word, is an awesome word. It's a compound word. It's, it's two words combined into one. In Greek, it's the word polygenesis. And the first part of that word, palin, just means again. Something that happens again. And the second part, genesis, is the same word as the name of the first book of the Bible. Genesis. The beginning, the start of an entirely new order of being. Right? That's what the Genesis was. In the beginning, there was nothing other than God. And God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis was creation from nothing. Genesis was not God rearranging stuff that already existed. Matter and subatomic particles and pieces of stuff floating around in space, forming it kind of like Play-Doh into the world that we know now. That is not what happened in the beginning. Genesis was, out of the darkness, light. Out of nothing, life and everything that exists. Out of the formless void came the glorious handiwork of the Almighty God. That's what Genesis was. And that's the the power and the significance of this word that Paul chooses to use here in Titus chapter 3 to describe and to define what it means to be a Christian, to be in Christ. It doesn't just mean that the same person who always existed has now sort of been rearranged has now learned some new stuff, new rules, new principles, new wisdom, new philosophies that are going to help them live a better life. That's what every other religion in the world is. That is not what Christianity is. The new life that God's Word reveals comes to those who believe in Jesus isn't the same life that you came into this world with, just with a sort of a software update, version 1.0.1.2 now. Some refurbished principles to live by. It's not the same life you were born with, with a new set of, new set of tips and tricks and life strategies. The new life that God's Word talks about and defines is nothing short of death and resurrection. That's what we have to understand. 
It's nothing less than the death and burial of the old self, the old me-centered self that sits on the throne of life and says, well, whatever I decide to do in this life is up to me. I call the shots. I make the choices. I'll decide what's right and good for my life. Christianity means the death of that self, the death of that Steve, the death of that guy. That self-honoring, self and sin-dominated, God-defying, I won't let him be the final. I might look to him for some advice, but I'm not going to make him the final authority of my life. I'm not going to do whatever he says, whatever the cost. Christianity is the death of that person, that truth-suppressing, Christ-denying self, and the creation, the resurrection, in its place of a new self, a new life, on an entirely new order of being, a Christ-dominated, God-centered, truth-defined life that no longer operates by asking, what do I want? What do I need, first and foremost? but operates by first asking, well, what honors and glorifies God? And is willing to count the cost, whatever it is, to lay down rights, to cast aside desires and personal ambitions, and sacrifice whatever is necessary in order to bring glory to God. That's what the Christian life is. The death of the old and the and the newness of the new. That's what regeneration means. Rebirth. It's a radically new creation that is unprecedented in your life. Nothing like you've ever known or experienced or been before. A new genesis. A new beginning in Christ where sin is being conquered and put to death daily, where this new life is being washed and cleansed and purified constantly by the glory of the holiness of God in us. So, the phrase here in Titus 3, verse 5, the washing of regeneration, this is Paul's way of describing the redemption and the salvation of Believers from sin. It's a washing. It's a cleansing. It's a life now of purification from all sin. Repentance, as John Calvin famously said, is not something you do once. The whole Christian life is a life of repentance, of cleansing from self-righteousness and self-gratification and self-authority to a life that is more and more defined and dominated by what honors and glorifies and pleases God. And the phrase that Paul uses to define this new life is this phrase, the washing of regeneration, and it literally means the washing that regeneration is. So what Paul is saying is that is that God has saved us, sinners, not because of anything that we've done, not because of the good lives that we think we've lived and and earned ourselves a spot in heaven, 
He saved us by washing us of all that is us with a washing that is nothing less than a supernatural, miraculous, God-formed regeneration, new genesis of life. With a cleansing that is nothing less than, than new birth. A completely and utterly new life, resurrection from spiritual death by the same power that brought Jesus Christ up from the grave. Nothing short of that is the kind of washing and renewing by which the Holy Spirit of God saves us by His mercy. So in this passage, up in verse 3 of chapter 3 of Titus, Paul said, For we ourselves were once, all of us, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves, in bondage to various passions and pleasures, Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating others. It's sort of a summary statement of the sinful condition of the human heart. Those are the character qualities of the flesh, right? They're the kinds of character qualities that show up in all of our hearts, that all of us were stained with. Foolishness means doing what seems right in our own eyes instead of saying, I only want to do what God says. Disobedience to God means living for the sake of our own desires, first and foremost, instead of committing ourselves to pleasing Him no matter what the cost. Malice, envy, hatred... I don't care how nice of a person you think you are. There are no humans alive who don't have some of that in their hearts and in their lives. We're all in here. These propensities live in all of us. And we were all, God's word is clear, we were all enslaved to that kind of sin. These passions and pleasures, like Paul says here. And you may say, not me. Maybe you don't think that you were. Maybe you don't think that God's Word is describing you here in Titus 3 when it talks about being utterly enslaved to sin. You think, well, no, I've lived a good life. I haven't done a whole lot that's wrong. Well, see, here's here's where it all falls apart for any of us who would want to say that. It all falls apart when we compare ourselves to God God's holiness, and ask ourselves how good we've really been at living purely without spot or blemish or defect or departure at all for His glory. How good have we been at that always without fail? Not just in terms of what we do on the outside, but even in terms of what we think and feel on the inside. Isn't that Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount? It's the heart. Not just the deeds, it's the heart that God cares about the most. How well does your heart love God more than anything or anyone in this world always and without fail? We're all guilty. We all fall away. And we all fall infinitely short of His glory. 
But the good news of the cross, the good news of the resurrection is that God in His mercy has poured out such a torrent of regenerating goodness and loving kindness that our souls are made clean, are made new in Jesus Christ, washed, regenerated with the washing that regeneration is and renewed. That's what the gospel is. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now today, again, we get to do something wonderful and beautiful that God has ordained that is a picture that illustrates all of that. Today we get to baptize because God has been merciful to our sister Vicki and he has eternally blessed her with the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so when we baptize, we picture somebody going down in burial, buried with Jesus in baptism, raised with Him to newness of life, and washed and cleansed as new creations from the bondage and the slavery of sin. The practice of water baptism was ordained and instituted by Jesus Himself in order to be a picture and a sign of all of that, of the great spiritual reality that Paul is describing right here in Titus chapter 3. Water baptism signifies this spiritual washing, this spiritual cleansing of sinful souls, the washing that is regeneration, that is new life in the risen Christ. After Jesus was raised from the dead, what did He command us to do in Matthew chapter 18? To preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to baptize those disciples. And He chose that particular practice and that word, baptize, see? Because of what it means, because of what it pictures. It pictures getting wet, and it pictures getting clean. That's what, the, that's what the word baptizo means in Greek. It means getting wet, oftentimes by being immersed down into water. I've said this before, that boats that were in, in naval battle in ancient times that were sunk to the bottom of the Adriatic Sea were said to have been baptized, overwhelmed by the power of the sea. Baptism pictures that being buried into Christ and overwhelmed by His life. And the word baptizo also has deep connotations of cleansing, of washing, especially when it's used in the Bible. When the Gospels talk about the ceremonial washing that was required for people who lived in Jesus' day in an Old Testament time so that they could be able to enter into the temple, people who are dirty and defiled by sin, to come into the presence of the Holy God had had to bathe. In fact, not just people, but everything that was used in the temple had to be washed. Cooking pots had to be washed. Even cups that were used by the priests even had to be washed. 
and ceremonially cleansed. And the word for that washing is this same word, baptizo, baptize. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul uses that word baptize, and he's using it there not to talk about the, the specific practice of water baptism, but the inner spiritual reality that water baptism is a picture of. Listen to what he says in Romans 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, immersed into His life and holiness, and washed and cleansed by Him, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? What does that mean? What does it mean to be baptized into Christ and into Christ's death? Well, the short answer is that it means that by God's mercy and grace and infinite goodness through faith, our sinful, rebellious, idolatrous, fleshly hearts have been completely overwhelmed with the power and the grace of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross so that we aren't the same people anymore when we're baptized into Christ. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, he says, in Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And you can picture lavishing as just something being poured out in an overwhelming flood of cleansing power, sanctifying power and mercy that has caused us to die with Christ and be raised to newness of life. It's caused our lives to change from being governed by me to being governed by God, from despising God and resenting His ultimate authority in our lives and doing what we want for our own reasons and our own desires, from being that to being people who who hate our own sin, who love God so much and want from the depths of our souls to honor Him and to please Him with our lives that we're willing to do it no matter what the cost. So see, having our bodies baptized into water is a picture of our lives being baptized into Jesus. Immersed in His love and grace. Overwhelmed by His regenerating mercy and goodness and loving kindness. Our fleshly passions drowned by the deluge of His love and kindness unto us, like the earth was cleansed by the deluge of the flood in Genesis chapter 6. So that now, we are cleansed, we are washed, we are purified, we are alive in Him, freed from the bondage and the curse of sin, to live more and more each day with Him, and for Him, and in Him. That's what baptism pictures. It's a public declaration that this is what has happened to us by His grace. It's a statement that by the power of Jesus' resurrection, we've been reborn. We've been renewed. 
It's a statement that the bondage and slavery of sin have been broken by the power of Christ's life and death and resurrection. And that our hearts have been so changed that even though we do still sin and do sinful things, we hate our sin. And we want every single day for God to free us from our sin, for God to destroy our sin, for God to wash it all out of us and cleanse us from every spot of it. Now, here's the big question. How does that actually happen? As Christians now who have been raised to newness of life, how do we break the terrible bonds of the old habits of sin in our hearts and our lives so that we learn to walk and grow in the holiness that God has lavished out upon us? How do we turn from the old habits? Old habits that say, I want to do things my way. Christians, you still have those habits in your life, don't you? You still experience the temptation of the sinful flesh to do things that way, right? According to your wisdom, according to your desires? How do we break those habits and start more and more to live for God's pleasure and glory and foster and and cultivate this instinctive desire to do what God wants no matter what it costs us? I think to understand that, we have to think about the way that sin operates. The ways in which sin tempts us and influences us in our lives. How does sin have such a strong hold in our hearts? What is it that, that is captivating to us about sin? Well, one thing is the attraction of sin. And this is something that we all just have to admit. The allure of sin whether it's greed or malice or lust or pride. I mean, it seems so simple, but somehow I think we all need to remember that no one sins out of obligation. No one sins just because they have to, out of duty, right? No one sins grudgingly just because they think they're supposed to or they're obligated to. We sin because sin holds out some promise of happiness to us that we put our trust in. Sin says, you're going to enjoy your life more. Just like Satan said to Adam and Eve in the garden. If you do things this way, if you do things your way instead of God's way, your life is going to be more meaningful and pleasurable. That's the promise that sin holds out. And in the hardness of our hearts, we believe it. We trust that promise more than we trust the promises of God. More than than we trust God Himself. That's really the essence of what sin is. It's, It's trusting in us. Trusting our own desires, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own way, our own will. More than we trust God more than we trust His promises, His way, His will. And so first of all then, sin will get conquered in our hearts and lives 
And we will experience more and more freedom from sin as we come to know more and more and trust more and more the promises of God and the goodness of God and experience the reality that His blessings and His goodness to us, His promises and fatherly care for us, all of that is far more satisfying than our sin could ever possibly be. Savoring the goodness of God more and more and more is the first key to how sin gets conquered in our lives. And then two, let's think today about another way that sin burdens and influences people. Even even regenerated, born-again Christian people and brings them under a terrible bondage sometimes that seems unbreakable but that in fact has been broken. Not only is sin alluring and attractive to our flesh, our bodies, sin also creates an overwhelming, overpowering, and often seemingly paralyzing sense of guilt that makes a person sometimes feel so hopeless and be filled with such a despair that deep down inside of their hearts, they get burdened with a fundamental doubt about whether or not they could actually really truly be forgiven and accepted by God. There are Christians who know the gospel. They believe, but their hearts are so deeply plagued with guilt and shame that their instincts are to doubt whether or not God could really ever have mercy on someone so sinful as them. And, and, and the result then for them is this despair. And the result of this despair is very often that those people have trouble making progress in fighting against the allure And the attractiveness of sin because they're lacking hope in escaping the guilt of sin and the shame of sin. Maybe you're in that boat today. And if so, you need to hear and you need to meditate on the Word of God to you when it says here in Titus chapter 3 that He has saved us by His own mercy, by the washing of of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses that same word justified, and he says it in this way. He says, Our old self was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's what God has done by engrafting you into His Son, by lavishing you with the blessings of Christ's death and resurrection. He's crucified You, your flesh, so that the bondage of sin in your heart would be broken. The bondage of guilt, the enslavement to sin's 
attractiveness is in fact broken by the Word of Christ. And here's how it's broken. Here's how the death of Jesus sets us free from slavery to sin and guilt. Romans 6, verse 7, For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And the word set free there is the same word that's translated justified here in Titus 3. See what that means? See what Paul is saying? Our old self was crucified so that we would no longer be slaves to sin because He who has died, He means you, Christian, is justified, is set free from sin. It means that in overcoming the power of sin in our lives, we're not just given the moral ability to overpower the temptation and allure of sin. We are, but better, first and foremost, we're given the personal legal right by justification to break the heavy chains of despair and of guilt and of shame that bind us to the belief that we can't possibly be forgiven and declared righteous by God. That's what justification is. That's what justification is. Justification is God looking at you legally as a righteous person even though actually you have sinned and you do sin. Even though you are a sinner in the sense that you have sinned and do sin, even though you are horribly guilty, God accepts the blood and the righteousness of Jesus as enough to pay the price for your sin and to fully accept you in His sight in spite of you and your guilt and your sin. And the resurrection of Jesus proves it. When Jesus was raised from the dead, God said amen to everything that Jesus did on the cross. And see, trusting that and believing that, that's the foundation of freedom. It's the only basis of being able to overcome the paralyzing and hope-destroying sense of guilt and despair of our sin so that full of the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, we can make progress towards fighting against the allure of sin, the attractiveness of sin in our lives. This is how it works. We've got to lay hold of the freedom that justification brings so as to be filled with the power that the grace of God gives to overcome any desirability that sin holds in our lives, any attractiveness, any allure of sin in our lives. If your heart isn't convinced that in spite of your deepest shame, God loves you, He accepts you because of the perfect, finished work of Jesus. If your heart's not convinced of that, you're never going to know freedom and the strength to grow and mature in your pursuit of holiness. But when you come to understand and trust and embrace the reality that by faith we are united to Christ, that is the definition of you now, new creation. It's a, it's a, it's a new creation that is in Him. 
So everything that God says about you is what God says about you in Him. His death becomes your death. His life has become your life. His blood has satisfied all of God's wrath against your sin. His righteousness, Jesus' righteousness has been fully accounted to you. Before you were a Christian, you had a bank account balance. If you went to the, the heavenly ATM and looked at your balance, it would have been negative infinity in the red. And now in Christ, all of His righteousness is accredited to your account. So that now you are infinitely in the black because you are infinitely and eternally in Christ. This is the gospel. So that God in Christ, God looks at us even as the people who have sinned and do sin. And he sees us as covered with the blood of Jesus, robed with the righteousness of Jesus. And he says, I forgive you for all of it. You are justified. I accept you. We're reconciled. I love you. And we are embraced with omnipotent arms of love for all of eternity. And when you get that, that that's what's true of you in Christ, that's when you will know true freedom. And that's when you will start to realize true freedom over sin and really grow in grace. That's what it means to be in Christ and in His death, buried with Him, raised with Him. When your heart trusts that truth, when your soul rests its full weight on the all-sufficient, justifying love and grace of God in Christ, then your soul finds freedom from guilt and shame. This is what Hebrews 12 means by... As you're running this race of life, make sure that you don't get all encumbered by the sin which so easily entangles us. Well, how do I be sure of that? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of your faith. See yourself in Him. Know yourself in Him. Understand all that He has done for you. Meditate on it day and night. Fight temptation through the gospel. Grow in holiness through the grace of Christ as He continues to perfect you and to grow you and to cause you to endure and run with endurance the race that this life is. Your soul starts to cry out, Amen, to the promises of God that are yes in Jesus the more you meditate on them and understand them and trust them. Your soul starts to say, you know what? If, if, if this is what I have in Christ, if this freedom, if this life is what I have, I don't need sin. I don't need its allure. I don't need its appeal. I don't need self-sufficiency if I'm sufficient in Christ. In order to be content and at peace and full of joy in my life because the love of Christ that is lavished on me is better. It's more beautiful. It's more desirable. And when your soul starts to sing that song more and more, then up out of the wellspring of, of deep, confident faith will come the life of maturity and righteousness that Christ forms through faith. As faith is formed through love. So being a Christian means living each day of your life in the reality 
of what your baptism pictures, of what your baptism portrays. Being a Christian means having been raised to newness of life in Christ and being in Christ. It means day by day looking away from ourselves, looking away from our flesh and looking unto God and saying, by faith, Father, I trust your promises at the very core of my being. I trust that in Christ I belong to you. It's daily saying to God, Jesus is my only hope of acceptance with the Father. My hope is based on what He did, not on what I could do. His death, His resurrection, and my death and resurrection in Him. And knowing that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Christian's the one who says that they belong to Christ, that they surrender to Christ, And that Christ is the Lord of every area of their life. He's the one that we seek to serve. He's the one we seek to please. Not self anymore. Not anyone else anymore. The Christian is the one who, having been raised from the death of living to self unto the eternal life of living for Christ, understands Jesus' own words. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me whatever the cost. For whoever would save his own life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his everlasting soul what is there in this world that's worth it as we submit to God's word today and as we prepare to witness the testimony of a a, a daughter of the king who has taken up her cross to follow Jesus ask yourselves that question What do Jesus' words mean for you? What does the new life of regeneration look like in you, in your life? In daily living, what does the washing of regeneration look like? Forsaking the pleasures and the riches and the things of this world to seek first His kingdom and righteousness and allowing Him to add to you whatever you need in this world and being content with it? Or saying, I don't know if I can trust Him that much, so I'm going to attend to my own life now and amass for myself treasures on this earth first, and then if I have any attention or time or affection left over, I'll I'll try to give Him some of it. What will it profit you if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? And what would you give in return for your everlasting soul? All that matters is eternity. Amen? All that matters is the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray, and then we'll prepare for baptism. Our God and our Father, how grateful we are for this great gospel of everlasting life. For we are convinced, Father, and we know from your own word and the words that you have poured out upon us, and the life that you have given to us, we are convinced 
that in our sin we had fallen infinitely short of Your glory and that there was no hope of us having life. But Father, You poured out Your mercy upon us. And in spite of the fact that we were helpless, You saved us and You regenerated us and You washed us and You engrafted us into Christ and You gave us life. You crucified us with Him. You buried us with Him and You raised us up to new life in Him. God, would You give us the freedom of knowing that all that we are is in Christ. Would you give us the freedom of knowing that our sins are washed clean, that we are justified, that we belong to you. And in that freedom, would you give us the strength and the power to combat sin, to defeat it, to crucify it, to mortify it, and to grow in holiness, to live our lives as people who have been washed with the washing of regeneration. Our God and our Father, we love you, we trust you. Our whole hope is in you. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to have uh, Vicki and Fred come on up, and they're going to come in here and get ready, and I'm going to go in there and get ready for baptism as we all sing the song on page 11, My Soul Finds Rest in God Alone. That's, that's great.